Hello, and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city shaping infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. In this episode, my co-host Janice Lee from series sponsor PwC and I spoke to the ACT Chief Minister, Andrew Barr. The Chief Minister has had an extensive career in public service dating back to the mid-1990s and is well known for his drive to seek reform across the policy spectrum. We discuss what drives the Chief Minister's approach to reform, the modern approaches and opportunities that exist to deliver the ACT government's infrastructure pipeline, and whether it can elevate the territory's status on the world stage. We also discuss what's on the horizon as the ACT government implements its decarbonisation agenda. It was a great chat, so here it is. Uh, so, Andrew Barr, Chief Minister of the Australian Capital Territory, thank you very much for joining us on Inside Infrastructure. I thought it might be best to start off with you telling us uh, who you are and what you do. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my role as Chief Minister is is akin to being Premier of the Australian Capital Territory and Mayor of the City of Canberra. Uh, but in a small government like the ACT, where we only have nine ministers, I, I also have other portfolios uh, Treasury, economic development, climate action, and tourism. Uh, so it, you cover a broad range uh, of areas, but in terms of my infrastructure uh, involvement, my uh, Treasury portfolio together with the First Minister role uh, means that you know, largely every infrastructure project in our jurisdiction uh, comes across my desk. With two hats on, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the the big question I came up with when we were researching for this podcast was, um, how does a lad from Lismore end up as <laughs> you know, chief minister sitting around the national cabinet yeah. table? What what does that journey look like? Uh, well, it, it starts uh, in the early nineteen early mid nineteen seventies as as a firstborn of teenage parents. Uh, mm. So my, my parents were uh, at Lismore High. Uh, and in year 11 and year 12 when I was born. So I was lucky that the sort of extended family, uh, grandparents on both sides, um, aunts and uncles, uh, were all there and supported my parents to finish year 12 uh, whilst they were sort of caring for a uh, for a baby and then to enable them to go on to university. So uh, intervening in, in that period just after I was born was the uh, famous 1974 Lismore flood, yeah. mm. the, the once in a century event that now occurs <laughs> once every 10 years or so in, in Lismore. So that was, the flood was always something that completely preoccupied my my grandparents. They, they lived in mm. South Lismore and would flood all the time. So I, I guess the, oh, I was born in Lismore, I haven't spent that much uh, time there. How we, old were you when you moved away? Uh, we, when my parents went to uni in Armadale, I would have been two and three. Uh, mm. I came back and forth to Lismore. I'd be sent back um, to grandparents during exam time. Yeah. But, but my parents would structure there. One would do classes in the morning, one in the afternoon uh, at UNE in Armadale in order to finish their their degrees over over those. Someone would have taken us through then to sort of the the mid-1970s. And then my dad, and the reason we came to Canberra was my dad got a graduate position at the Commonwealth Treasury. Mm. Uh, and so came down uh, in 1977. Uh, An my, economist? Yes. Uh, mm. and my mum finished her uh, diploma of education, became a teacher at what is now the University of Canberra. Uh, and yeah, it was just the three of us until my uh, little brother came along in uh, towards the end of 1979. So mm. 
that's how we came to Canberra. Uh, my teenage years were were spent, uh, I, I guess, being at the edges of uh, the dining room conversations that my uh, my parents and the sort of their friendship group, who were sort of all young up and comers in the Commonwealth Treasury. Uh, Ken Henry amongst them. Uh, we used to go camping Jarvis Bay with uh, with the Henrys. Uh, Can it have the hearts for camping? Yes, oh, yeah. definitely, definitely. Did you uh, um, did you grow a love for wombats as well through that no, experience? Not so much, as I say. I think I moved out of the country, <laughs> became a city boy fairly quickly. I think it would be. Uh, Was it uh, a political upbringing? Mm. More uh, policy. Oh, look, I think strands of both, mm. uh, but but sort of interestingly, because the rest of the family, pretty much, with the exception of a, of a couple of my dad's um, sisters who live in Sydney, everyone else was Northern New South Wales or Queensland. So. Yeah. Those of us who move south are sort of, you know, laughingly referred to as the, you know, the the red <laughs> labour <laughs> end of the uh, of the family, uh, and most of the the ones who stayed uh, uh, up in the Northern Rivers in Queensland are not. Uh, I mean, I don't know necessarily how they vote these days, but uh, we're certainly not seen as the you know, sort of the labour outpost. Mm. Um, so politics was a feature, but I was the first in the family to join a political party. Mm. But in reflecting on, as a child of teenage parents in country New South Wales, that, that they got the opportunity to go to university yeah. was reflective of that time period, 1972 to 75, and the Whitlam government. Yeah. Um, so if you want to think of a sort of a moment that shaped opportunity for my parents and then ultimately for me, it was access to university education because I'm not sure how many teenage parents in Lismore in you know, the, the mid-1970s would have had those opportunities. And then on, on to Canberra. Uh, and yes, I, I think the interest in politics and economics for me came through through that period. So by the time, I mean, I, I remember the, the Hawke government winning in 1983, but then being perhaps most interested uh, as a teenager in politics and economics by the time of the 87 election. Mm -hmm. I vividly remember mm -hmm. that and all of you know, I think it was John Howard's first run at, uh, uh, at being Prime Minister uh, at that time. So the Hawke and Keating governments were a, sort of a big part of what was happening, at least in, in my family and my parents' work. Uh, and you just absorb some of that, I guess, as a as a teenager. Um, but then defining moment when I joined the Labor Party was when not long after Paul Keating became Prime Minister. Yeah. I was at ANU, first year at ANU. Uh, and so I guess that was the, sort of, you want to say, a pivotal moment. Yeah. Join Young Labor and there we are, 30 years on, the rest <laughs> is history. Well, there's still yeah. some history to There's write. a bit more to, <laughs> yes, to cover in the intervening period. But yeah. 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 I, I, you know, when you look at your time, there's a really recurrent theme around leadership. So you were sort of school captain, you then went into student <laughs> it's politics. A personality type, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I um, confess. And then as, yeah. as a staffer, right, um, I guess what, who were your role models? What, what were you looking to get out of a life in public service? Yeah. Well, I think my parents very, mm. very influential in, uh, in both what they did in their professional careers mm. and 
know, the values they instilled and their belief in, you know, and like it's why we had come to Canberra was, and that's why a lot of people do, is to, you know, to contribute to the nation through the, the capital city. And that that's a, perhaps a very Canberra thing, uh, but it was very ingrained in me as to having to explain why it was that we were all, you know, a thousand kilometres away from everyone else in the, mm. in the family. And, you know, but they were, there was a reason for this and mm. why, why they chose to, uh, to, to uproot their family to, um, to come down to the capital. Uh, and then, you know, I guess you then overlay that with those, you know, those life-changing um, moments mm. that, were as a result of politics and government and policy uh, that presented opportunities, you, you then sort of reflect on the power to influence and to mm-hmm. make a better society by being involved. Mm. Um, it's an old cliche, but the, the decisions are generally made by those who are in the room, who, yes. you know, who turn up and who argue for their, for their position. Mm. Uh, and I guess I learned that lesson uh, at school in in things that wouldn't be considered, you know, big P politics. Uh, and in fact, my my run for school captain and the, and the school board at, at Lynham High School was uh, largely motivated by being sent home one day on a freezing Canberra winter because I wasn't wearing the official school uniform, which you couldn't do in a public school. You couldn't be excluded from education as long as what you were wearing wasn't offensive. Yes. Uh, I mean, it might not have been the best woolen jumper I've ever worn, but, you know, it was still, uh, you know, it kept me warm, served the yeah. purpose. Uh, but I was excluded from attending an extracurricular event, like a lunchtime history lecture or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was just sort of so weird and bizarre that mm. uh, that motivated, uh, you know, no one will Project. be excluded from education. <laughs> yeah. And that was my platform. Oh, wow. for, and I got elected. So <laughs> oh, wow. it was also an early lesson in, you know, yeah. you're unhappy about something, you, you've got to yeah, sort of take it. some action to remedy it. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I, I I look at how I've seen you in the press over the last few years and I you've taken some pretty brave stands. You've been first mover on a bunch of things on same-sex marriage, on, um, you know, like decarbonising the economy, um, you know, and and a lot of those things are not without some level of personal risk. Um, you know, what what's been the hardest part of all of that? Actually, sometimes it's disappointing people who you count as your supporters. Mm. So I've found found it harder often that when the inevitable compromises that need to be made over time to achieve some of these things, you can't deliver 100% of what uh, you know, your most passionate supporters might expect from you. So mm. that's been harder than, the, I guess, the, the other way. Like I, I, you brace yourself for the inevitable opposition mm. to whatever reform you're seeking to implement. It's, it's when, you know, you, you don't get, you've not pleased your own uh, your own base that that can that can sometimes be the most confronting mm. but I, I've learned over the years uh, that you know it whilst it's very important to be passionate and to thump the table occasionally that you shouldn't let the you know the very good be the enemy of the perfect at times mm. and if you can get 80 or 90 percent of what you want you take that and then you come back in a, in a later round to re-prosecute some mm. of the um, the things you may not have got on the first pass, and that that approach, I, I think I'm in a pretty 
lucky position of having had the longevity in, in the role to be able to have more than one go at a few a few of these reforms and mm. recognising that you can get there in, in incremental steps. Mm. Australian politics is not, in recent times, certainly has not allowed a number of people mm. the opportunity to have another another go at a particular issue. Mm. Um, when we have spoken you know, over the past decade or so about policy things, I've always been... I've been struck by you tend when we have conversations you you often prosecute the argument in two different directions and you know to understand the frailties in it which feels like a very almost like a public servant type <laughs> <Could be. laughs> approach yes. to the world yeah. was there a point where you where you made a decision between being frontline politics versus being a, in a, a uh, more of a public service or well, I think I put that that down to four years at ANU, a public policy degree. To, to, mm. But then also I think it's really useful practice from a political perspective to have thought through what, what are the counter arguments? What, you know, yeah. you're going to, these, these issues will be raised. How do you, um, how do you respond? And then in trying to get to a solution, uh, it can often be useful to, you know, either pick apart the arguments against or accept that some of them might be valid and you have to adjust your, uh, you know, either your approach to an issue or your pathway to achieve what you want. But, but one, of, one of the things about being able to carry an argument is that people are convinced that you're convinced about that. Yes. Output. So is there a moment where you say, well, this is the position and now I'm full bore 100%? Oh, there, were, there are certain issues that you've, you've got to get to that. Get to that point because yes, if you sound doubtful, then. Uh, but I think there's also room for, you know, for a bit of nuance. I mean, I, I found that during the the COVID management, mm. that you know, I would say, look, I've I have no good options in front of me. All I have is a series of bad options, and I've got to choose the least worst one. Uh, and I'm not happy about having to make some of those choices, but it is what it is. And you know, you you've ultimately you've got to lead and make a decision. I'm so policy driven, <laughs> you know, that that's the thing that matters most to me. So I, I have joked in, in some other occasions where the, you know, the, the policy guy, the, the treasurer has to rein in the, you know, the, the increasingly popular streak of the chief minister <laughs> that you know, does appear you know, every four years at least. Uh, that just finding that balance and, and having the, you know, sort of the internal dialogue because of the some of the roles I hold that in bigger governments might there might be more than one person mm. who's doing so. You just more of an exposed those. tension. Yeah, in those I think so. Yeah, I mean that's what I've observed in, in some of the other jurisdictions. Done well and done really badly, where you know political ambition just gets in the way of uh, of a sensible discussion between a first minister and the finance minister, and you you never get anywhere. So mm. I, I've been determined that I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to myself. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, that's all a bit yeah. silly. But it's unlikely the treasurer is going to knock you off the yeah, top job, yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. But the, the you, you've got to be conscious that those tensions are there. Yeah. And I find sort of yes, my thought process and sort of policy development framework is to look at it from all of those different angles, and to surround myself as much as I can with people who will bring a different skill set and approach so that I've got a wider circle of advice. Yeah. I think that really that really helps. I mean, mm. you, you can't, obviously, there's a limit to that in a political context. You, know, you can't have people who are going to disagree with you on everything all the time, but, you know, it's the value add. 
And yeah. I think that's that's the important thing and what I what I value in, in my team and the broader public service that I work with. You mentioned the COVID experience. I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about, <laughs> about it. Because that. Yep. you you um you were around those national cabinet tables, some of those really difficult decisions where you say there was no right or good answer, no good options, but also no playbook and mm-hmm. um I don't know, at the, at the time, a real sense of not knowing what was coming. Um, it's on a, just on a personal level, the pressure of that must have been pretty extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel in hindsight, it was uh, sort of an amazing leadership journey to go on, but it sort of feels a bit trite to say that given what, you know, what everyone else went through. But my, I guess my mantra throughout throughout that to myself and to, to my team was we are going to make some mistakes here because mm-hmm. things are challenging and we don't know where it's going next and we there's nothing you can draw upon that this is the definitive answer. We're going to make mistakes but let's not try and make the same mistake yeah. twice. Let you know Where we do, let's learn from it, not repeat it and move on and not dwell on it too much. And then I think one of the benefits of the National cabinet model, it's ironically given everything we, we know about the, the former Prime Minister's approach in some other areas, was that it, it forced him to widen his circle of advice. If he didn't, ha- you know, if the constitution wasn't structured in the way it was that devolved a lot of the public health powers and responsibilities to states and territories, he would have endeavoured to have run the whole thing himself and it would not have involved uh, you know, the, the wider set of voices at the table. But um, so I think, you know, whilst it had its challenges and its moments and didn't necessarily get everything right, I'm still of the view that it was a national cabinet was a, a net positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and that although I felt he was sort of forced to do it, uh, Scott Morrison would reflect on it as well in a reasonably positive light. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, he had his irritations, and there were, but it was a better national COVID response because it was there. Mm. Do you think that then the national cabinet through that process has proven itself to be a good structure or is it something that needs to evolve now we're not in that quite the crisis? Yeah, I, I think it was it was a good structure in the, the way it met and the frequency for crisis management. A, a more normal set of intergovernmental relations needs uh, a slightly longer run in, more mm. more process. Uh, so a bit more back towards the COAG. Yes, but not not, not complete reversion to it. It had just got bogged down in yeah. in bureaucracy. So mm. there's a there's a balance, a sweet spot to find. And mm. uh, I, I think we're we're not quite there yet, but we're headed into that. But, but is that way. is that meeting of first ministers in the in the national cabinet that kind of peak grouping a, a valuable overlay to the the kind of broader ministerial pieces and the... When it directs useful work, delegates appropriately in, in areas where you need specialist advice and where, you know, even you know, the most policy adept and experienced first minister is just not going to know, you know, the level of detail. I think it, it can work as an excellent coordinating structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not quite at the same level, but sitting just below it, uh, is the treasurer's equivalent, 
Uh, and I think that is fundamentally very important. I'm a very strong believer in treasuries being involved. Now, and that's the one that includes the Commonwealth government yes. or the because yes. there's the state board of treasuries yes. as well. Yeah. So we, we've got state state only bodies uh, that sort of meet to progress some issues that we don't need the Commonwealth at all so to progress. From the outside, mm. that looks to those of us in the infrastructure sector to have been a really beneficial body to nut Definitely. out some yes. mm. some really good proactive yep. reforms. Yep, absolutely. So, so is it the absence of the Commonwealth that makes that work? Well, it, it was in that period. It allowed movement on climate issues, taxation issues, productivity enhancing issues, deregulation issues mm. that didn't require the Commonwealth to participate. Yeah. Okay. So they were all wholly within the remit of the states and territories. Where where no progress was made was where we have overlapping responsibilities mm. or where it is sit solely in the Commonwealth space and they just weren't interested. And you know the origins of a lot of this are uh, I think a 2017 Productivity Commission report shifting the dial and they, they laid out three streams of work, that that the states and territories could do themselves, that was joint responsibility and that that sits with the Commonwealth. And I think if you dug out that report, went back and had a look at what was what was achieved and what wasn't, mm. there'd be a lot more ticks in the column of um, state and territory reforms. Does that dual role of being the Lord Mayor as well as First Minister, does that still work as Canberra grows and the ACT grows? Like is there a point yeah, it where does get harder. it gets yeah, a bit it, it stretched to do both? So, again, I, I've got the flexibility within the ministerial structure. So mm. I have a Minister for City Services mm. uh, uh, and that, that Minister, uh, Chris Steele, also has responsibility for transport. Mm. Um, so there's you know, some of those key issues you, you, know, you can have a dedicated minister yeah. to focus on. So I, I guess the, the mayoral local government role I use more as a, a ceremonial element mm. to it, I guess, as well, but no wigs and gowns. <laughs> I had to do a very modern republic uh, model. <laughs> do, you, do, you actually, do you have the title? No. Lord Mayor, so it's not a... No, it's sort of no, a function, no. yeah, so isn't it? It's yeah. just, okay. just by mm. virtue of membership mm. of the Council of Capital yes. City Lord Mayors, yes. uh, which is the, the body I sit on there. Yep. So, yeah, they are, yeah. the rest of them are Lord Mayors, but I'm Chief Minister. But that's an important intergovernmental mm. yes. entity uh, and just allows us to play a role as a capital city. Mm. Um, so I do that sort of that sort of work, and then the other local government arms um, of my portfolios are really about our region. Mm. So surrounding the ACT, uh, I think there's about six or eight, depending on how broadly you spread mm. the um, the geographic footprint. There are six mm. or eight local government areas that have a very close. Mm. Uh, relationship with the ACT, you know, either lots of people who live in those local government areas work mm. in the territory or send their kids to school or access health services. Mm. Uh, you know, Canberra yes. is the regional hub for, there's half, you know, half a million people in Canberra and Queanbeyan and there'd mm. be another 200,000 who are within an hour or so mm. of, um, of Canberra. So yes. engagement with them, that's the sort of thing I, I do yeah. more than um, you know, being the guy responsible for the garbage collection. There's a minister. Yes. <laughs> that. Yeah. Did, just, there's a bandwidth issue though, right? Mm. With your two hats on, multiple ministerial yeah. portfolios. Um, it, with all the meetings you just have to go to just to 
How do you get any time to do any work? Uh, well, you, you get more efficient at it yeah. over over time. Uh, but it's sort of a remarkable intersection in Australian politics. I don't think there's any other job like it mm. that, you know, that I, I sit on all these different. So it's a, it's, well, I feel I'm playing a reasonably valuable coordination role mm. across the states and territories and with local government uh, and the you know, various levels of the iterations of the Commonwealth have sort of relied on the fact that I've been in all of these meetings and can then, you know, <laughs> yeah. report back that this is what was said. There's a lot hanging off your memory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, unfortunately, that's one of, generally speaking, although it's not, not as good as it was when I was <laughs> a little younger, but yes, being in those rooms is, is helpful. I mean, mm. it's part of the job I quite enjoy. Yeah. Because it, it gives me an incredible amount of um, diversity in the issues uh, I cover and a, and a knowledge base that, like, you know, if it happens in the Federation, I, I see it move. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and I sort of feel like, oh, I've seen this one before yeah. and now I can refer back to, well, when this last came up, this is what we did. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the sort of benefit of that experience I think is, is useful, uh, useful for me in leadership as well because, yeah. you know, whilst... Whilst you know, a two-party government with uh, you know we've got eight other ministers, so that my cabinet is not dissimilar in size to you know, the federation. Mm. I think working in a group of nine is uh, is I'm quite used to it now, and yeah. trying to you know find consensus and compromise and push issues forward. Yeah, I think it's good practice. Um, we we wanted to talk about Canberra yeah. a bit. You've mentioned some of the numbers. I think you said about five hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, the, the latest census data was a bit of a surprise to many. Uh, 455,000 inside the Territory and then yeah. Queen being just on the edge should be 45,000 or thereabouts. Yeah. So the sort of satellite suburbs get you to half a million. Mm. For 10 years now, the fastest growing um, state or Territory. So. Yeah, mm. and... Um, uh, when we look, you know, you look, you see OECD often ranks in Canberra as a highly livable city. I'm sure it appears on the Economist metrics as well. Sometimes they set the threshold you need to have a million people, oh, so we are unfairly <laughs> excluded. Oh, <absolutely>. Dreadful <laughs> threshold. But there is a there is a point that as cities get bigger, they tend to fall down those mm. metrics. Yep. So highly livable city now, but a strongly growing city. What do you need to do to maintain the things that make it a good city despite mm. the, the growth? Well, uh, unsurprisingly, the answer is uh, is forward-leaning infrastructure. I was hoping you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think a key point of difference for mm. Canberra, you know, sitting as, as it does between Sydney and Melbourne, you know, the two biggest Australian cities that have experienced at a city level uh, very rapid growth mm. Uh, mm. and are you know, seen as... Um, are really the economic powerhouses outside of Western Australia, really, yeah. although Brisbane's starting to, to sort of mm. get to that tipping point as well. Canberra has to maintain that 20-minute city concept and mm. context, and as uh, population increases and uh, some of the congestion issues start to emerge, you, you've got to remain ahead of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and infrastructure is the answer. And transport-oriented planning as well, mm. I think is the other uh, the other key factor here in that you know, we, we know we're going to have to find you know, a certain number of new dwellings every year. The, the policy framework has been that Canberra not 
endlessly sprawl. Yeah. So obviously mm. you've, you've got a choice. Do you, you know, do you become a bit, you know, in an Australian context, I hasten to add, more like a Singapore city-state mm. approach mm. where, you know, you've got a lot of greenery and yeah. uh, you know, a quite desirable urban environment but density in certain areas. Yeah. You know, or do you take the Los Angeles model of just, you know, a thousand suburbs in search of a, of a CBD? Uh, so, so that... Are there places, similarly sized places to Canberra, that you see either as a, a model or a cautionary tale? Uh, well, look, I've, in my international travels, uh, I've wanted to sort of pick what I would consider the best bits out of mm. uh, some of the other national capitals. So there's a striking similarity between Canberra and Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, and I haven't been to Ottawa, but I'm told uh, mm. sort of similar, uh, similar elements there. Uh, Singapore is a uh, not every element of it, but mm. no, there are many. City similar, mm. isn't it? Really, and you know, and a, it functions. Mm. It, you know, it mm. works. Uh, its infrastructure delivers for five and a half million people in a in a pretty tiny yes. footprint. And then I look at some other U.S. cities: uh, Austin, Texas. Canberra's not quite as cool as Austin <laughs> yet, you know, but there's a, you know, there's a pathway. Uh, and our sister city, Wellington, mm. actually, the, the Kiwi capital, a little smaller, a bit more compact, but mm-hmm. there are some interesting lessons that you can you mm. can draw from. Slightly more those. seismic than Canberra, though. Isn't yeah, it? indeed, yes. Yeah, you do feel the earth move a little yeah, more yeah. Um, over that side of the ditch. Uh, I don't have as many sort of, you know, things you'd want to avoid, other, like, cities that I Probably always nicer to talk about the, you know, the good bits of cities that, that you'd want to replicate. Uh, I mean, San Francisco also has some elements that you know I think, of, yeah. um, but others that mm. you know it's, it's got some some significant economic inequality and uh, there, there are mm. a range of challenges um, challenges there. Mm. Uh, so you know you you if you can pick the those yeah. best bits out of out of some yeah. of those. I mean that that what they have in common is. Uh, knowledge-based economies. Yeah. Uh, they've tackled the public transport infrastructure uh, challenges reasonably well. They've managed urban growth in an environmentally sustainable way, by and large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I was in Singapore uh, the week before last, all anyone wanted to talk to me about was climate change yeah. and a lot of interest in what Canberra's doing uh, and how Singapore could learn from that, which... Yeah. Is a bit of a reversal of yeah. you know, some of our previous engagement, which was sort of a lot about how we yes. might learn to, you know, to to better price infrastructure and mm. um, you know get best value out of um, mm. uh, out of our city footprint. Yeah. Some some of the similarities between those cities, though, is also that they were very planned cities, and mm. that's one of the unique things about Canberra relative to any other city in Australia. It was drawn on a piece of paper, you know. It, and, and and I quite love a lot of that sort of urban planning literature around Canberra because it really was designed at a time when that sort of garden city was the ideal and it was meant to be, a, you know, a little bit of a social model of bringing together elements of country, elements of city and whatnot. But but much of the infrastructure challenge of servicing that is, is almost what... Is, is trying to be corrected for today. Like, so the, the density projects and mm. the, the talking about light rail as a leading project, like it's designed to try and get people to think about using public transport. Yeah. I mean, if you were to design Canberra again, what would you do differently? The underlying philosophy I was mm. 
excellent for the time mm. and, and made sense except for the climate. Yes. There's not, you know, there's not been enough water mm. at times uh, to sort of fully meet the ideal of, the, of a European garden yes. city. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, you know, we have, we have you know, necessarily had to invest significantly in, mm. uh, in water storage in order to, I think it speaks volumes for both that water issue and lifestyle issue that at 450,000 people, it's the biggest inland city in Australia and there's nowhere else I think that's... Yeah. Going to come close, and uh, but one of the constraints is is water. Mm. Yeah, then you, I think it was one of been Jan Gell, one of the um, European um, city architects, described Canberra as trying to have a party in too many rooms, <laughs> <laughs> and because it is just bits are so spread out, and yeah. it does it does lack some of that population density mm -hmm. and so you don't get full value out of your infrastructure investments mm -hmm. and then the, the challenge now is the city's more than 100 years old so some of the original infrastructure is at end of life and mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've got a budget for its replacement at the same time as meeting the needs for new infrastructure in infrastructure. some of the yeah. growth areas so hence our planning framework mm -hmm. is that so at least 70% of the future population growth will be within the existing city footprint. Mm. Now, that is a change management challenge. Mm. And, and I would sum it up this way, that for a generation of Canberrans who are older than me, uh, and I'm nearly 50, mm. and who have lived in the city for longer than me, and I'm up to 45 years now, mm. that changing face of Canberra is very confronting. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if you were to ask them their views on me and my role in that, it would be very unfavourable mm. that, you know, Canberra has changed, you've changed the planning, you've moved away from some of those concepts. Mm. Uh, there would then be a group largely my age mm. and who've had, you know, probably two to three decades in the city who recognise for a range of reasons, environmental and economic, that this change had to occur. Mm. And they're pretty comfortable with the rate of change and the direction that we've mm. pursued. And then the remaining third, generally younger, not exclusively, but generally, I think it's not changing fast enough. Yeah. And that you know, they wanted even sort of more gritty, dense urban experience and that we lose them to Sydney and Melbourne and increasingly Brisbane. Mm if we don't offer that sort of urban experience. So the balance we have to strike is to find some, identify some precincts and parts of Canberra mm -hmm. that can replicate that uh, inner city yes. uh, experience mm -hmm. that you know, many people really desire, mm -hmm. whilst at the same time protecting some elements of the garden suburbia or many elements of the yes. garden suburbia that are attractive um, to people who've been in the city a while. Mm -hmm or that might be over the course of a life cycle where they might want to go. They, not everyone wants to be in an apartment, you know, in the inner city when mm -hmm. they're in their, uh, you know, between sort of 30 and <laughs> yes. 60, you know, so yeah. we, we sort of have a lot of young people and a lot of retirees and that's, that's your inner city population now. Yeah. Um, so catering for all of those different mm. um, demands through you know, your housing and planning policies is, is the biggest challenge. Mm. But I think in the end, I wouldn't still be in the job if, you know, at least 
two, you know, two of those three blocks were <laughs> happy with what we were yeah. doing because they vote every four years yeah. on, on this very question. And have you seen it change the character of certain precincts and areas? Oh, I, without doubt. Yeah, uh, and I think I've seen on, that too in recent And sort of on one level, mm. you know, I take a great deal of personal pride in the fact that more Canberrans are now prepared to defend their city <laughs> <laughs> and that the view, you know, from, from outside is, you know, oh, wow, Canberra really has changed. Mm. Um, and I recall a, a conversation with the now Prime Minister because uh, he's been coming to Canberra for 25 yes. <laughs> years and uh, you know, his observation was that, yes, it is a, you know, a much better place uh, and that you know, politicians, you know, whilst not everyone loves coming to Canberra, and if you were you know, travelling from WA, I could, you know, it was a very long journey. I could understand, but for many, for many federal members of parliament and you know, when business people, visitors, it's now actually a very desirable destination for for a short break and not something that is resented. You know, like oh, I have to go to Canberra. You know, oh, you still hear that a little, but <laughs> nowhere near as much as as used to be the case. Um, in that journey of change of Canberra, how important is the light rail as the kind of linchpin of that change? Well, I don't think I could point to any other project that simultaneously achieved the sort of uplift in public transport patronage. Yeah. The um, flow of investment uh, along along the route. And That's into the housing. Oh, and and you know, commercial, uh, retail. Uh, and you know, essentially all facets of economic activity, yeah. and you know, it has been a game changer. And it, a few people have joked that you know, you know, you've made it as a city when you know you've got rail infrastructure. Some other people say when IKEA opens up, you know, <laughs> that's it. we've got both now. Um, you've yeah, got Costco, as indeed. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it. it's uh, there are certain things that sort of I think perhaps might be markers of you know when a uh, a town becomes a city, yeah. you know, so it becomes a little bit more yeah. real. You know, an international airport tends to be another uh, another thing. But the, but the problem is with that momentum of growth. Mm -hmm. Now you've got the light rail. Is as I see it, there's a bunch of competing priorities now, and the maybe the yeah, and the that pot would, of money's not the same. As yeah, it, as that it would be that would be the biggest political debate. Uh, yeah. Is not so much that we should be investing in infrastructure. It's which projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, so what are the some of the things you have to weigh up? Right. Uh, well, uh, ageing health infrastructure hmm. uh, and an ageing population, so a need to both renew and expand yep. uh, health infrastructure. Uh, a combination of ageing education infrastructure and then a need to build new facilities in uh, in some of the growing areas. Yep. Uh, or interestingly, where the, uh, the demographic change has occurred hmm. and the population density has been concentrated, uh, we've had to make existing schools bigger um, and that all cost money. Uh, and then you get the sort of what, what I have described as the nice to have rather than essential infrastructure mm. projects that, you know, encompass football stadiums, you know, larger convention centres, yeah. um, theatres, uh, arenas, live music venues, um, you know, a lot of that social amenity that I would describe as being a, a that's a sort of state or territory level thing rather than a local government yeah. responsibility. And then, you know, people will always complain about footpaths, potholes, uh, you know, all the things yeah. that you, know, you get in every... Uh, so so on, on the assumption city. that there's a finite amount of money available and it can't do all of those things, what's the process you go through to 
determine which of those nice-to-haves? So we, we have a 10-year infrastructure plan uh, that's essentially subdivided into asset class, project scale, and then an assessment of the whether there's existing infrastructure and where it, it, has in it, yep. it is at in its uh, life cycle. Then there's, you know, there's always a, a, a political overlay yep. and uh, you know, we would generally in a, in a rolling four to five year infrastructure program that's part of an annual budget draw down on yeah. uh, and draw from the infrastructure list. The other factor is the Commonwealth Government's ability to partner uh, with, yeah. us, with state and territory governments on particular infrastructure projects. Yeah. But that's a weird system because there are some things that they, ref, you know, they, have, they have no history of ever jointly funding. Yeah. Others that their history of jointly funding would appear to be uh, very closely linked to the marginal seat status <laughs> of, the, you know, of where, yeah. uh, where the particular infrastructure is and then others that they do all the time. Mm. And then it depends also a little on the political ideology of the of the government. So, for example, the coalition government, there wasn't a road project they weren't prepared to tip money into. And I would often find that they would announce in their budget, oh, we're doing this for a road in the ACT without even talking to us. Yeah, okay. And we'd be expected to fund the other half. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would always say, no, we're never going to fund a football stadium. And then they'd put $100 million into something in Townsville because yeah. that was the most marginal mm -hmm. seat. But, you know, you always say, well, they're never going to do that in Canberra. So, uh, you know, we'd be wanting to have a conversation with them in convention infrastructure. Where, well, if we are building a convention centre for the city of Canberra, it would be of a certain size. Mm. But, you know, people have aspirations for Australia to have a national convention centre that would have national and international events. Yeah. Well, that's necessarily a partnership with the Commonwealth Government. But we've been mm. dancing around that one for 15 years yeah, okay. with you know, the Commonwealth probably rightly in the end deciding not to, not so much because you couldn't build a large convention centre in Canberra, but then yeah. if you wanted it to host a G20, yeah. you'd need 20 presidential suites in, yeah. you know, in, in high-scale hotels. Incidentally, this is what I mean about you yeah. being policy focus, not politician focus, you're saying, <laughs> well, they're probably yeah, this, right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but I, I guess that the problem I have is in managing local stakeholders yeah. whose view is they want mm. a national convention centre. And so yeah, I point okay. out the reasons why it may not work and why we probably should focus on something at our level. Yeah. But then that's only good. It's not perfect. Yeah. And so that's why this debate has <laughs> has uh, raged for a little while. So uh, how how uh, how easy is it to resist the calls for a new footy stadium? And that seems like a. I looked at it at what have we currently got? Yeah. You know, it's not ideal, but it's not terrible. And what are the competing social infrastructure projects? Yeah, and okay. really, really, there were th three that we focused on: new theatre precinct, mm. stadium, and then convention. Yeah. facilities uh, and I've, we're doing them in that order theatre stadium convention so, so my challenge in there's a australia's just been awarded um, preferred status for the 2027 mm. men's rugby world yep. cup and the 2029 women's rugby world cup what's the chance i can come to a game in canberra uh higher for the women's because of the timing and because we've within the auction for elite sport, we have determined a policy position that would support more women's sport. Yeah. We've paid out a lot of money 
like excessive over the odds in my view for sort of not the highest quality content. Like not all Rugby World Cup games are created equal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, in my view when I was, I'm being asked to provide, you know, for one rugby game yeah. more money than I would provide to the ACT Brumbies for a whole season yeah. to, you know, to play in the Super Rugby competition or more money than about 10 women's sporting teams. Yeah. Uh, for one game, for you know, eighty minutes of rugby union, yeah. just didn't stack up. Yeah. The other factor is is a timing one, in that I yeah. do believe it will be time for infrastructure improvement at the state. You know, in terms of stadiums, and it's likely to need to be done mid decade. So I yeah. need to make an investment decision in the next two or three years, and by twenty twenty seven, we're likely to be in the middle of construction yeah, okay. or something. So. I, you know, you wouldn't host a, a World Cup game in a half-field in a half stadium, stadium. Yeah, I mean, other codes of rugby are available. They're just not nearly as good. So, <laughs> uh, that's why I'm preferencing Well, not, you, not yeah. to mention AFL and cricket and, you know, all, all of the other. And, you know, but they, these are, you know, very like, there have been dozens and dozens of articles, you know, yeah. opinion pieces. You know, the back page of the Canberra Times, wouldn't you wouldn't go a week without a... Yeah. an article about the stadium. So infrastructure is, uh, people are fascinated by it and very interested in the decision-making processes. Everyone's an expert. And when you, when you sort of choose between those quite different types mm. of projects, is, is there a sort of vision question about the brand Canberra? Like what, what does that brand look like yeah, five, there, ten there years is, from now? There is, uh, and I guess that's in the totality. Mm. But in, in setting the order... In, in this instance, yeah. I mean, I, I did have to look at, well, what were the inadequacies? What were we missing out on? Yeah. And in the theatre space, it was quite significant. Yeah. You know, and mm. more Australians attend cultural events than sporting events. As, you know, as bizarre as that might, might seem in yeah. the context of the disproportionate level of media attention. Mm. Uh, and we look at, I suspect our theatre could be used 300 nights a year. Mm. Our football stadium will be used between 20 and 30 nights a year. Uh, and that's quite a compelling difference in terms of a mm. number of people who yeah. will, you know, so even you know, it's 2,000 seats, but uh, 300 times a year, if you three quarter fill it, mm. it's a lot more people than they're going to attend uh, 20 football games. It actually goes to a broader question about the amount that we use our infrastructure. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Generally, mm. I, yeah. I was struck by schools that for large swathes of the year are completely it's closed empty. but have playgrounds and yeah. those kind of yeah. do you think have we got that equation right no on? no we don't and we i mean we have a lot of projects around out of hours access to schools yeah. and we now design the new ones in a way that facilitates you know their gymnasiums being used for community yeah. sport their halls and theatres and facilities being able to be used at a community level yeah you've okay. got legacy infrastructure that in order to access that you know you have to unlock the whole school and yeah that's really problematic it means you have to have you know people there security yeah. supervising all the rest but if you if you build it well initially you do have a community so you, you, what yeah. you'd kind of recharacterize it as a piece of community infrastructure that yeah. happens to have a school in it as a yes well, yeah yeah uh, and you think about yeah you think about the week. location then yeah. there's a broader debate and we have some examples of this where you know we will run some of our schools longer hours and sort of yeah. reach an industrial agreement that particularly for year 11 and 12, we, because we separate year 11 and 12 from high school, 7 mm. and 10, you know, we've got some colleges 
that you know, that run a little bit like a university. Yeah, okay. In the you know, the span of hours, it means you can have more students. Uh, yeah. And you know, so whereas if many schools have knocked off by three or four, we've got some colleges yeah. that are still going sort of five, six in the evening. Yeah. Okay. So it's not it's not twenty four hour <laughs> use, but it's yeah. widening the span of hours. Yeah, and, and so overall that reduces or delays the need for, for upgrades duplicate or new infrastructure. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah that's, that's fine. Mm. Mm. Probably has more of a placemaking function as well if you think about something that attracts people 300 nights of a week. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. particularly when the, you know, the major narrative is you, know, you want uh, wider economic benefits, mm. you want spillover from, and you know, what we've tended to find is that you know, people aren't, eating in the theatre, mm. uh, but they will, you know, though a night at the theatre yeah. involves going out to dinner before or after the performance or, yeah. you know, going out for drinks or, you know, whatever. It's a, It does genuinely spill over into the city economy mm. and more frequently mm. and on more days, like weekdays as well, because most sport tends to be weekend-based. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that we've spoken about in the past is the uh, all of the features we've spoken about Canberra being a uh, both a, a, a local government jurisdiction and a, a state government jurisdiction, um, relatively small, um, a small but sophisticated jurisdiction means it can be a test bed mm. for mm. things, test bed for reforms, mm. test bed for things in decarbonisation mm. and elsewhere. Um, so um, maybe we'll go through some of them in in a bit of a chronological order. So land tax reform. How's the project going? Uh, Ten years into a twenty-year reform, um, coming full circle, Ken Henry's uh, <laughs> review of uh, federal uh, federal and state taxes that uh, the Rudd government commissioned. It's largely sat on a shelf with, uh, you know, for a decade, but you know, one of the key recommendations was a shift away from stamp duties to land taxes. We yeah. already levied one in our municipal rates, yeah. so we've been over 20 years progressively making that change. Now, yeah. on New South Wales have just dipped their toe in the water. It's been talked about a lot, uh, but yeah. we're demonstrating how you can do it. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's not an, it's not an instant, you know, it's not yeah. an overnight reform. But, but so. are you starting to see the changes in terms of um, uh, allocation, highest and best use in land, yes. like some of that yep. actual it's productivity? Certainly, certainly happening. The uh, And there's been, because it's, I guess of a lot of academic interest uh, yeah. and research interest, given it's a live case study, mm. the you know, the economic analysis has shown it has you know, grown our gross state product. Uh, it's led to more affordable housing. Now you know, mm. you're swimming against a tide of yeah. a range of other yeah. other factors as well. But compared to the the base case of if the reform hadn't happened, yeah. compared to w- what it is now, it's delivered a more stable revenue base that I, I suspect has been a feature in the ACT maintaining its AAA credit rating. Mm. And it has you know, reduced a very significant burden, particularly on younger people when they get into the housing market. So mm. whilst it's been a, a whole of housing market approach, we've fast-tracked it for first-home buyers and for more affordable housing. So the biggest cuts in stamp duty making them zero in many instances have flowed to that end of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but over time it will it will flow through. And it's also been the commercial end as well. It hasn't just been yeah. residential. Have other states been watching how that's gone? They have. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I think I've sat in at least a dozen mm. uh, 
federal and state treasurers' meetings where you know it's referenced as a case study and everyone sort of rubs their chin and goes, oh, that'd be a really good idea. <laughs> and then you know, no one's really done it. New yeah. South Wales have had, a, have had a bit of a go. Yeah. You know, but I think their reform is a 50-year one, best case probably, probably take a century yeah, on the way they've designed it. opt-in yes. mechanism. Yeah. You know, and there are legitimate reasons why you, know, you would go down that path and they looked at our model and decided it would be too hard to do, but there are problems with the New South Wales model as well. Yeah. It's administratively way more complex yeah. Than, yeah. and it's going to be slower. You know, we'll, we'll get ours done in 20 years. Yeah. It will, will take a century. Why even Why even 20 years? Like what's the sort of thinking behind the stages? Well, look, that the, yeah, I mean the initial, initial recommendation was do it in 10 mm. and we looked at what the implications of that would be in terms of the increase mm. in the rates that each and every rate-paying household would pay and determined that that was just too much, uh, that you know, cost of living is still, mm. a, you know, is still a reality. So the first phases of the reform, you know, we were seeing 10% annual increases in rates. It's yeah. now at 3.75. So you know, we've been able to slow that because mm-hmm. um, we did a lot of the heavy lifting mm. initially. Uh, this is really technical, but we looked at sort of a batch of the taxes that we levied and one of the other ones that was identified as a really bad tax was tax on insurance products. Mm. So we've abolished them. But no one really knew they were paying them. Yes. <laughs> so you know, in explaining why it was that people's rates were going up, I would say, well, they're, uh, yes, they are going up, but here are other taxes that are going down. Mm. Hands up who knew they were paying 10%, mm. a 10% tax yeah. on their home contents insurance, their building insurance, their motor car insurance, their life insurance, you know, any insurance product they had. Mm. Not many people noticed mm. that and that's why it's, I don't think many other jurisdictions have got rid of insurance taxes because yes. they're quite well hidden. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, you know, you, you want more people to have insurance so taxing it is probably not a good thing. Mm. Um. One of the other things you've sought to be first and fastest in is decarbonisation. Mm. Um, so an earlier target for net zero than yep. than other jurisdictions and a more aggressive pathway to get there. Uh, I get how's the project going? Mm. Pretty well. So we we became the first Australian city to be powered one hundred percent by renewable electricity in twenty twenty. Uh, that was about five years ahead of the mm. original target. We're on the now a sort of twenty year pathway, twenty two year pathway out of natural gas. Mm. Um, so about two thirds of Canberra households have natural gas, principally for heating. Mm. So it's a big energy demand in our winter. So it's a because it's cold in Canberra yep. in winter. You can't just click your fingers and make that change. It's again, it's a two decade long. So how does it work on the ground? So I've got a. I'm in Canberra. I've got a gas space heater and gas hot water. Um, at some point in the next 20 years, you yes, come around so, and so say... so essentially what we're saying in, in that circumstance is that depending on when those appliances were installed, their mm. lifespan is probably going to be about 20 years. Yeah. Mm. So when they fall over, go electric. Yeah, okay. and, and you're providing a subsidy to do that. We, we are at the moment uh, for people who want to take out appliances early. Yeah. Uh, I suspect, I mean, I don't want to probably be... 
I'll be a very old man. <laughs> I'm still going to be in this role in, uh, in 2045, but future governments will, will need to make a decision. Uh, but I suspect the market might have moved by this point anyway. Yeah. But mm. replacing a gas appliance in 2035 might be very, very expensive and you, yeah. you might have determined that paying for two energy connections, yeah. electricity yeah. and gas. Mm. So have you dealt with the kind of stranded asset that's, yeah, that mm. is the that's the big that's why you need a longer transition yeah, transition okay. period, and that's both stranded assets at the household level and and, uh, and yeah. that that is owned either under a you know, by a regulated utility or yeah. that the, the taxpayer owns. Yeah. Now, fortunately, the transition to electricity is into another part of the business that we own mm. as well, yeah. and in fact, we have more ownership of poles and wires and uh, energy retail mm. than we do with the gas. Uh, and what it means is, though, a lot more renewable energy generation is going to be required mm. and we're going to have to augment our network and put in place a lot of batteries. Now, mm, we've yeah. got a program to do that. That's already underway. Mm. Um, but this is largely what's going to happen in the rest of Australia. Uh, we'll just be doing it first. And when you say 100% renewables, is that all through local generation? Is it No, no. So we, what we did was uh, a Canberra-based company called Wind Lab mm. mapped out the globe and picked the windiest spots, the best places for wind farms, and mm. then they then did that for us in the national energy market. So yeah, of right. all the states that are on the east coast in South Australia that are connected, they found the windiest spots that could possibly mm -hmm. host a wind farm where the, the land use and private ownership was welcoming of that. Mm -hmm. And so we have wind farms in Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales uh, that are in windy spots. So, you know, answering the question, um, you know, what happens when the wind doesn't blow? Well, you pick your wind farms <laughs> you in locations that uh, <laughs> that's less of an yeah. issue. Yeah. Uh, and then they are supplied. So we effectively had a, 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 an auction, a reverse mm. auction. We said to the renewable energy providers, bid us the lowest possible price mm. for this energy. We will give you a 20-year supply contract. Mm. So they did that and these projects were built mm. uh, and they're now supplying okay. energy. Mm. We also have solar mm. uh, and Canberra is more reliable for sun than it is for wind. Mm. Uh, so we have a lot of large-scale solar in the territory and then we have a lot on rooftops, mm. um, school buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens is that when, when this project started, Canberra was using about 650 megawatts of energy. We have contracted more than 650 megawatts of renewable supply. Mm. So some in some days, some weeks, some months, the renewable energy generation is way more than the city's consuming. Mm -hmm. And so we sell that into, into the market. Other times it's unders, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're not performing as well. So that's one of the reasons why I want the battery storage so mm -hmm. I can sort of level them out. But mm -hmm. we, we account for this over the course of a year, not mm -hmm. at any given moment because yes. of the way the national energy market works. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think on, on sort of on any given day, about a third of the power comes from coal, but increasingly the renewables mm. are lifting their share. Mm. Uh, and so having a diverse portfolio, it's like managing risk really in terms of a financial investment. Mm. But what it's done is protect, we've hedged on energy prices. So you know, this financial year, New South Wales and a number of other places have seen their energy prices go up by 20%. Mm. Ours have gone down by 1.5% because of the fixed price supply contracts. So 
that gives people certainty mm. and they know that the energy is coming from a, new, a renewable source. One of the... Uh, one of the similarities to Singapore is you don't have a lot of land to put. That's <laughs> yeah. the, so there is a land use conflict. Yep. If you want space for things like housing, but mm. also for solar panels, and so you're going to yeah. leverage off. Yeah, you, you got to be smart about, and, about that. And you know, increasingly, we're finding there's demand for commercial and industrial land. So Canberra is an excellent place for mm. um, data centres. So mm. there's a, a massively growing industry for us. So there's a lot of high security needs for the Australian government and yeah. Defence Force and all the rest, but a lot of companies are wanting and liking that security of uh, of having their data stored that way. So another factor that's appealing there is that the energy to power the data centres is renewably sourced. But, so the demand profile, because those things are energy hungry. And in yeah. Singapore, they've had to put a cap on it because yeah. it's impacting on their ability to meet their emissions targets. So we look very desirable as a location for a sort of ethical investment in data centres because they, they're they powered by renewable yeah. energy. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, they're obviously generally pretty large warehouses, so you, you, know, you put your solar panels on top, you have on-site battery storage for mm. backup. It's a pretty good economic model. So do you mm. see additional tranches of that kind of reverse auction model yep. to get the, the next? Yes. So as, as we transition with... EVs, so you're going to have more electricity demand, less petrol and diesel bought, more electricity used, and the gas transition. Mm. Electricity, I suspect electricity usage will double over the next 20 years. So we are going to have to contract more renewable energy generation and do better in storage. And that's the pathway that we're setting out in parallel. Equally, we want to also have some demand reduction measures. So, you know, more efficient appliances, smarter use of energy network, so time of use, charging, yep. you know, all of the things that sort of go into best practice infrastructure yeah. usage. That, uh, and maybe the batteries in the electric vehicles doing a yes, two-way doing, job. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned briefly yes. the, the big battery. So it's not one big battery, is it? No, there's, no it's a, it's a network of, of, yeah. So all comes under the banner of the big Canberra battery, yeah. uh, but it's a distributed network. So we've got, we'll have some very large ones on the interconnectors into New South Wales. Um, mm-hmm. That sort of performs both the storage and frequency yep. um, and modulation and there's a range of other network capabilities that that allows. Yeah. Then we want strategically located batteries that align with uh, electrification of particular assets uh, or to displace diesel generation. So yeah. I mean, having biggest energy user in the ACT is the ANU supercomputer. Mm. uses a lot of energy, surprisingly yeah. a large amount. Uh, it has a diesel generator in its basement as a backup. So yeah. seems like a prime location for, yeah. uh, for a big battery. We want to do the same with our bus depots as we transition mm. from diesel to electric buses. Hospitals, schools, universe, other universities, TAFE, mm. think of all of these sort of institutional level um, Batteries. Yeah. Then, in partnership with the Commonwealth, there's the community battery program yeah. um, that you know, well, allows, at a neighbourhood level, households who you know may not be able to have a battery in their premises, but you know, for example, medium and high density mm. housing mm. can participate. And, in and the the aspiration is to be able to have some degree of control 
over all of so, these components? Yeah, so sort of it's three key purposes. Yeah. Uh, one, to make a little bit of money through arbitrage. So yeah. we, when we have surplus renewable energy, we'll store it and then sell it back into yeah. the national grid when the prices are higher and when the demand's there. Secondly, it's about network stability, yeah. uh, locating them well so we don't have to have expensive additional investment yeah. in the poles and wires. Uh, and thirdly, it's your backup. You know, if something you know, over, you hit by a storm else, or yeah. whatever, then you've got some battery backup so that your whole energy network doesn't go into a blackout. Or if you know, as we have had occasion to experience over a very hot summer or mm. other yeah. points when there's peak demand in the national energy market, being yeah. able to inject, you know, mm. for yeah. five minutes or thirty minutes and run some of your batteries down so, you know, you avoid brownouts and blackouts. Mm. Yeah. And um, so on a – right now you can, you've got the sort of net um, zero emission grid. What, at what point do you project you'll be able to run Canberra for most of the year without ever having to draw on the – Well, I think it's, it will be an intersection of, of – three things, the extent to which we can mitigate peak demand, mm. uh, and that's sort of more efficient appliances and mm. uh, pricing that you mm. know, might suggest to people that you know, the best time to do the washing or put the dishwasher on is not at the same time as you're charging your car yep. and mm -hmm. you know, cooking and all of those things. There's a demand side. On the supply side, it will be our best projections on what that peak demand uh, might well be. And then on the battery storage side, perhaps how entrepreneurial or how much risk mm. we're prepared to take um, as a mm. storer and then later reseller yeah, of yeah. energy into the market. Because I think a lot of, I mean, there's going to be a lot of private sector interest in this mm. yeah, uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but there's clearly a role for state governments. The South Australian government has returned, the return on investment for that yeah. big battery there has... Yeah. Within three or four years, I think that was. Do, do you need some some long duration storage as well? We we may, but the question of whether pumped hydro is mm. a better model for that, and that's mm. occurring in the snowy, not that far mm. from Canberra as well. Mm. So I think there's a conversation. Maybe be able to contract that. into yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The switch to zero emissions buses. Like, mm. how far progressed is it in the ACT and? Like just, it's it's quite a complex transition, isn't it? Really, um, can you talk us through what that sure. looks like? So we've uh, we've run a number of trials. We've looked at a number of different vehicle types. Mm. And we've settled on the one that works best in our in our environment. We're procuring that now. The biggest inhibitor is the um, bus depots and mm. the charging rather than getting the vehicles. Mm. It's how we then store and charge them overnight and sort of manage that within our, our bus network. So yeah. you know, a lot of people are demanding, well, all the buses should be electric. Well, I mean, yes, they will, mm. but we've got to be able to store and charge them. Um, it's a bit like you know, saying, well, everyone will have an iPhone, but yes. sorry, once once the battery charge runs out, you're on your own. So you've got to have the, the charging infrastructure as well. Mm. And sort of doing that smartly, aligned with the batteries and in the right points of our sort of intersection within what's best for the transport outcome and what's best for the energy system outcome, mm. doesn't perfectly align sometimes. And so you've got to augment one or the other. 
Yeah. So is it, is, it an, is it an infrastructure issue at the depots or the location of the depots? It, it's a bit, you know, like the optimal place for depots from a transport efficiency perspective yeah. doesn't always yeah, perfectly okay. align with the, energy, the existing energy network infrastructure. Yeah, okay. So you then have a decision about... Do you put the depots where the electricity capacity mm -hmm. is the best or do you put the depots where you'd need the transport? Minimised dead running. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and then and then retrofit the electricity network. And it's more, I think that's the approach we're taking, mm -hmm. but the combination of batteries and and network augmentation might better do that more cheaply. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time for recording this podcast, but there's one question <laughs> we always yes. ask all of our guests. Yep. What's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? <laughs> there we go. This is the first time I'll be speechless. <laughs> I love all infrastructure equally. So, uh, well, look, I, I, I think you know, from a political perspective, it is, is infrastructure that uh, meets an identified community need that is delivered uh, you know, well in partnership with uh, you know, your infrastructure delivery partners on time, on budget, uh, and delivers a quality lasting product. Mm. Uh, I guess from a sort of an emotional perspective, it's the infrastructure that you know, gives you and the community more highs rather than, um, you know, so theatres and stadiums and those sorts of things are always going to, I think, be more attractive than the, you know, what would be considered dull but worthy infrastructure. But yeah. then that said, if you don't do dull but worthy right and things fall over, yeah. You never hear the end of it, and so you can, you know, that can then mean that the things you think are, are pretty and lovely and everyone wants will be detested because you did that and you didn't. I'm not hearing an answer to favourite here. Like, what's the? Favorite? Yeah, that was all the infrastructure, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, look, <laughs> given given where Canberra is at, and I, I think the things I'm most proud of in the end, as long as I get the basics right, are delivering things that we didn't have mm. that then sort of lead to a net enhancement of social, you know, the, the livability of the city, the, you know, the fact that people can enjoy it yeah. uh, and that you know, deliver something substantial for as many people yeah. as possible. So that sounds like light rail without naming it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, when you are delivering something for the first time for a city, yeah. that is uh, that is very rewarding, and to see it then being utilised and having a transformative impact, and, and also a very worthy winner of the Operator of the Year Award for the Infrastructure Partnership Australian National Infrastructure Award in twenty twenty. I think it was the 2022 award, but it might have been 2021. The short answer can be award-winning infrastructure recognised by Infrastructure <laughs> Partnerships Australia. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there will there will be some that you know, go completely unnoticed. You know, some infrastructure yeah. projects go completely unnoticed, but if you didn't do them, it would be a real problem. Yeah. Well, um, that I mean, that happened in COVID with freight networks. Is that people yeah. the the things the things that are hidden that nobody thinks about until the toilet paper doesn't turn up on the shelves. Mm that it then it become crucially important. Mm. You, you, I've, you've mentioned this before about the, the uh, in terms of prioritisation, is that you, those things, uh, people might say that, you know, health is the, the most important thing and they want investment in health, but when you trade off against something else, then maybe it's not the most, most in, yeah. important thing. Yeah, I mean, 
um, on reflection, you could say that you know, the hospital that saves lives is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then the school that educates yeah. uh, the the doctors that save the lives, uh, you know, like there's a you're yeah. coming back for a second bite of the cherry. On the <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll allow it. It's a politician's answer. Yeah. Surely I'm allowed one or two of those. Yeah. Well, you can end on a politician's answer. That's fair because I think all the others were, were very policy focused and not politician focused. So we'll end on a politician's answer and finish by saying thank you very much, Andrew. My pleasure. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you for joining us on Inside Infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send that to either Janice or myself. This episode was recorded and edited by Andrew Bennett and Rachel Blackman from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Brendan Pierce and Harrison Leapis. Thank you.